Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Today's episode, Andrea, my co-host, and I will be talking about a number of things relating to a book that I mentioned in a previous podcast in which we talked about books that were very important to us. And it's a book that's being read by a lot of people in these days titled Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents written by Rod Dreher. And uh, I mentioned that book in my list and Andrea said she had not heard of it before. I hadn't either until it was given to me by my wife as a Christmas gift. And I read it from cover to cover in short order. And I can think of many, many other people who have done the same thing. Andrea, you read the book. What sort of thoughts did you have about it? Well, the interesting part is when somebody I respect says, this is a book you should read, then it immediately goes to the top of the queue. And I didn't read it. I listened to it. It was available on Audible and I got it. And I found that I kept trying to find opportunities to get in my car so I could listen or (laughs) exercise a little bit more because I would have it on. And what struck me was how different the approach to being a follower of Jesus Christ is when a people are under persecution as opposed to when people are comfortable. And within the book, there was a number of chronicles, you might say, of people who went through either torture or persecution or definite lessening of their ability to move around freely and how their faith sustained them. And within the context of the book, there was a mention of a man from Eastern Europe and how they did a movie on his life, and the, the film was called A Hidden Life. So, of course, that now became on my top 10 list of things I was going to now watch next time I had opportunity. Both in the book and in the film, there was a, a message that said something to the effect of, I wonder how many people are merely admirers of Jesus Christ rather than followers. And That really struck home to me because in this book, Live Not By Lies, you hear about people who, at great cost to their comfort, security, and well-being, proceeded as a follower of Jesus Christ rather than an admirer. And I thought, why don't we talk about that? What's the difference between admiring Jesus, however good that might be, as opposed to following Jesus, however difficult that might be? This is a question, and this is an issue that goes directly back to the very beginning of the New Covenant era, but really all the way back to the Garden of Eden in some measure. You know, we we can think of numerous incidences in Jesus' life where people left him, stopped following him uh, because of things that he said that called them to do something more than just be entertained by the miracles or something uh, to that effect. I think it's relevant, too, to mention that the title of the book in which the movie and this question of being a follower versus an admirer are mentioned, Live Not By Lies, comes from a letter that the late, great Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote to the Russian people just before he was exiled and he had to leave his mother country to ultimately come to the United States to live until he was allowed to return. 
Solzhenitsyn was expelled from the Soviet Union primarily because of his Christian witness and its application to the politics of the day. And the point that he made in that presentation to his fellow citizens of Russia and the Soviet Union was this. After his own experiences, by the way, of being in the prison camps of Stalin's gulags, we may not be able as individuals to stand up and defeat communism, but we can not give in to the lies in terms of our own personal witness. So, he said, if you are at a place where somebody is speaking lies, you get up and leave. You don't have to support it. You don't, maybe you can't stop the lies from being spread, but you cannot be a party to it. And that's an example of doing something that requires more than just simply having sentimental feelings of admiration. It requires following to some extent. And in preparation for this, I did a little bit of research. I remembered this story that Chuck Colson had mentioned in a book he wrote many years ago called Loving God. And he recounts the story of Solzhenitsyn's incarceration, which he himself had told this story how in this Soviet labor camp, there was a Jewish man by the name of Kornfeld who had become a Christian in the camp. And if he was the one who witnessed to Solzhenitsyn. While Solzhenitsyn was in the cancer ward, he almost died of cancer while he was in the Soviet camp. And this Jewish man uh, witnessed to him and shared the message of Jesus with him. That man later was beaten to death by a prison guard shortly after he spoke to Solzhenitsyn. Another tangible example of somebody who did something more than just admire the example of Jesus and say, that's very nice, but he ended up becoming a martyr. And this again goes back to the beginning because th there's been this struggle throughout Christian history of people really understanding what is discipleship? You know, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I remember back in the 80s, I believe it was, a pastor in your neck of the woods, John MacArthur, wrote a book in which he raised this very question. It was called the gospel according to Jesus. And he raised it because there were many, many evangelical Christians of a certain theological persuasion that they said, well, you can have Jesus as your savior, but later on he'll become your, your Lord. And MacArthur's point was in that book and the testimony of these folks that you mentioned that are mentioned in this book and the example of the gentleman who refused to support the Nazis as recorded in the movie, which is based on a true story is that that's simply impossible. If Christ is your savior, he must be your Lord. In other words, you must follow him as well as admire him. You know, it's funny that you bring up that book because when I first came to faith, I was what I would consider a stupid Christian. I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit had come into my life, but I still had lots of very strange thoughts about the way things are. And the person who first introduced my husband and me to the writing of Rush Dooney had sent me a list because I had said something in a letter or a conversation to him about what I thought about something. And he said, you know, if you really want to be serious, you should read three books to get started. The first one was The Institutes of Biblical Law by Rush Dooney. The second one was The Mayflower Covenant by Marshall Foster. And the third one was The Gospel According to Jesus. And the whole idea of make disciples, not just make converts. And so those three had a very profound influence on me becoming an educated Christian, which up until that point, I didn't even think that was particularly necessary. I just thought 
you know, you accept Jesus. But then later on, I also got to hear a lot of the lectures by Dennis Peacock. And Dennis Peacock made the statement that even in the early church, nobody cared that Christians would say that Jesus was their savior. To the Romans, it had to do with religion keeps people happy. So you want him to be your savior, no problem. The problem was Jesus being the Christian's Lord, because that was a direct affront and offense to Caesar being Lord. As people had been told by Jesus to pick up their cross, they found out very quickly what that meant. I'm thinking that because of the relative security people have had in the West, picking up their cross was like putting on their chain that had a cross on it or identifying themselves as a Christian, but they never really understood being someone who was going to have to bear a cross. And Jesus said, you know, when they come after you, they're really coming after me and understand that. And so it was much more of a commitment than signing a petition and saying, okay, I'll, I'll join this club without even finding out what it was going to mean. I think Dennis Peacock says it really well. In the one talk he gives, he says, how many of you knew you were signing up for a war? He said, I didn't know I was signing up for a war, but then I found out that there is a war and I can't make any sort of truce with the devil. And I think that's the kind of thing that the people that whose stories are recounted and live not by lies realized that they were at war. Yeah, I'm reminded of the, uh, the story recorded in the book of Acts where Paul is struck blind on his uh, Damascus Road experience with Christ. And the Lord raises up this man, Ananias, to minister to him and pray for him. And of course, he's heard all about who Saul Paulus of Tarsus is, this uh, slash and burn killer of Christians. And he has some hesitancy about, well, wait a minute, you, this is the guy you want me to pray for. And it's interesting what the Lord says to him. It's in Acts 9.16. You know, he's a chosen vessel for me to make my name known to the Gentiles. But he says this, and, I, and I've always been struck by this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that implies something more than just sitting around thinking about it. I mean, suffering involves activity, and suffering comes as a result of Christian activity. And frankly, Jesus did not know any true disciples who did not follow him and get their hands dirty, so to speak. I want to say something about the, the nature of this idea, though, that John MacArthur addressed in that book, because I suspect it's still around in some circles. And to show how maybe something seemingly insignificant can lend itself to really strange and, and almost heretical teaching. And one of those ha things has to do with the nature of a human being, and I mean specifically spiritually. So there's one school of thought that says we are body, soul, and spirit. The other school, which is the more common among Reformed believers and traditional Protestants, is that, no, we are body and soul. We're only two, not three. And there's a reason why that uh, first one has lent itself to some strange interpretations, and it applies to this, because the people who advocate, or at least some of them, I'm not going to say all of them, but I've heard some of them say this. Well, you see, when you, quote, accept Jesus, he's becoming your, your savior, and that's what happens in, in your soul body or the, the soul part of your being. But later on, he'll become your Lord, and it gets down into your spirit, see? So you, you have this strange two-stage thing that Scripture nowhere talks about anything like that. 
But because people have gone off the rails with these kind of teachings, they continue off on a path of poor biblical interpretation and understanding and also not paying any attention to the creeds and the historic confessions of the church that have you know, put together to guide us to keep us on this kind of pathway. To know Jesus, to fully believe in him, means to follow him. And the nature of that word believe and belief, we tend to associate it with mental activity. Well, I believe that one plus one equals two. But in Jesus' time, and the time of the apostles, you know, coming at it from the standpoint of the culture in which they were a part of and the language that they spoke, belief and action went right together. So it was inconceivable that you would just have some mental agreement with something without it affecting how you behaved and the way you live. I just read one of Dr. Rushduni's position papers not too long ago where he said, any place where you would read, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you could substitute the word obey and it would not be a faulty rendering because, as you said, following and belief has a whole lot more to do than say, that than someone who says, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll check that out sometime, as opposed to what am I supposed to do? Because over and over again, I'm currently reading in First John, it's put very, very directly, love commandments go together. So if you love God, you'll keep the commandments and not just those things that fall into your Bible in red letters. It will be every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And since Jesus is the word and the word made flesh, that includes the entire Bible. And so in today's world, and I'll say it's getting less comfortable than it had been, we're finding that people don't have the metal. They don't have the experience that says, I will face resistance. And we got to see with the lockdowns and everything else, how many people disassociated the idea of who is Lord, Caesar or Christ, and how they proceeded in accordance with mandates said an awful lot about how much they did or didn't know about the scripture. You know, one of the things that attracted me to Dr. Rastuni's writings early on was the fact that he was writing from the standpoint of someone who fully understood that being a Christian, being a believer in what scripture teaches means doing certain things in every area of life. And I, I'm trying to come up with an analogy. It seems like a lot of people in the evangelical and reformed world who take, say, theology seriously, they spend endless hours to say, if we could put it in a comparison of auto mechanics, they spend endless hours talking about how a car functions and how to take the engine apart and put it back together, but they never drive the car. <laughs> or if they do, they never get anywhere with it. You know, They just crank it up and then cut it off. Our faith is meant to be an active, tangible visible, active faith. That's the faith we see on the pages of the New Testament and all of Scripture, actually. Rastuni's writings were uh, among the main ones that I found, and I think still today, in which those things are discussed and applied to real life. I think it's also interesting, too, that his own roots, even at the time he, before he was born and still in his mother's womb, were on the crucible of, of severe persecution. Many people, I, I, perhaps many people listening to us know this, but you know, his parents fled Armenia under the threat of the Turkish Holocaust, which took the lives of several million Armenian Christians. So that was woven into the experience of his ancestor and his immediate family, that this suffering and persecution, simply because you are a true follower of Jesus. 
I mean, I suppose that some of his ancestors uh, could have, and any Armenian ancestor who had to deal with this, they could have said, oh, hold on, we'll become Muslims. Some of them may have done that. I don't know. But obviously, there were several million who did not. Well, I think your point is kind of an interesting one in terms of being able to relate all these things together. So our faith is not something we do. Our faith is something we receive by grace. Yeah. All right. It's a gift of God. We don't produce it ourselves. Yet too many people, because of what I would call a relatively comfortable life and an unexamined one in terms of is everything I'm doing in line with scripture, that they basically proceed from the point of view that as long as I do these things, God is happy with me. Well, it's hard to know how something is going to withstand pressure until it receives pressure. So a lot of the product testing, for example, before a car is sold, before an appliance is done, they, they run through a lot of things to see if they can get it to fail. Well, too many Christians have not been raised with an understanding of the covenant, with an understanding of what it is that makes a Christian distinctive from a non-Christian. And so they don't get tested. And then you see what happens when they do get tested, that there's a falling away or there is confusion as to how to respond. But going back to the idea of living not by lies you know, Adam and Eve succumbed to a lie. They lived by that lie. And then as a result of following that lie, they had to bear the consequences. And so do all of us. So if we're not going to live by lies, that means we have to live by the truth. But unless we define the truth and what the implications of that, rather than just studying the engine, as opposed to finding out if this engine really works, you're going to have a very different witness. I'm thinking of what you said, that there was a man who witnessed to Solzhenitsyn while he was in the medical ward, and that earned him death as a result of doing that. Wow. You would think that one person talking to another person already in a prison camp would be insignificant, but for some reason, those who were in charge considered it a major threat. And that's the kind of martyrdom or witness that when the church does, that it basically has those who are watching say, wow, why would these people do this? Why would they risk their own security and well-being? And I imagine there are a fair number of people, Charles, who then examine this Christianity thing because of the witness or the testimony of those who had a higher calling than saving their own life. Just to clarify, uh, because I, I don't want anybody to, to think that we, we got this wrong, I want to be clear about the, the, the incident that I mentioned. The man who witnessed the Solzhenitsyn, he had, he had previously got himself into serious trouble because one of the prison guards was eating the bread that was to be given to the prisoners. And this man, because of his serious Christian commitment, said, you know, this isn't right. These guys are starving to death. This prison guard is stuffing his face full of the bread. I'm going to go tell the commandant. And he knew he was signing his own death warrant when he did that, but he did it anyway. And it sort of freed him up to go and do something like witness to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was already under a death threat, but he didn't care. You know, he realized that life is more than just running away from danger. And it reminds me of, um, I don't know if when you were younger, you ever saw this uh, classic uh, 
you know, they made a lot of religious movies back in the 50s and 60s, you know, like the Ten Commandments. There was one called Quo Vadis. Did you ever see that movie? No, I did not. It's based on the, um, the early Christian legend that during the severe persecution of Christians in Rome, the apostle Peter got scared and ran away. And as he was running out, I will say he was running out the Appian Way, running from the city of Rome, he met the risen Lord on the road. And Peter says to him, Quo Vadis Domine, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm going back to Rome to suffer with my people. That, uh, that shamed Peter, and he turned around and went back, and himself became a, a martyr for the cause of Christ eventually. And the, the real power of this book that makes it so very important, it's not just a good read about people who were suffering under the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain. It's the fact that those people whom he interviewed for this book some of whom he interviewed in the former Czechoslovakia and Romania and Russia. He went over there and interviewed them. Some of them were living here in the United States and Canada who had fled those countries during those days, almost without exception. They said, what we saw going on in our native land back in 1940, 1950, 60, we see it happening right here in these United States. And he makes a very important point. He says, you know, we've got to get out of our minds that, we are facing a Stalin-like Soviet communistic hammer falling on us in this culture. We're facing bad things, but it's going to be a soft totalitarianism. It's going to be one of these things like they say they have in China, where, okay, if you uh, download and listen to the speech by this particularly, we'll say, social justice warrior type, you get so many credits. You know, but if you download and listen to a sermon by R.J. Rushdoney, well, you get demerits and you don't get so many credits, so you can't go shopping. In it. That's what they had, something like that in China. And he warns us in this book, based on what these people are saying, this is what's going to happen here unless you decide you're not going to live by those lies. You know, there was one account that probably stands out from all of them in the book. It's of a woman and I can't remember which country she was from, but she had six children and her husband was in prison. This meant that she needed to raise the children herself and deal with whatever they had to do in terms of making money, supporting them. And she would bring people into her home and would basically disciple them and teach them. And at one point, her husband wrote a letter to her and said, they said, if we agree to leave and go to America or the West, they'll shorten my sentence. And her response was, no way. This is our country. We are going to stand for what's right. And we need to be the ones to, in essence, be salt and light here. And I thought, how many women would say that today. I certainly hope I would be among them. But then again, you have to realize that these people have lived their lives to be a witness for us so that we have examples as Solzhenitsyn is an example. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist already was not on the good side of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And what does he decide to do? He's going to go tell Herod that what he did was wrong. Well, if you look at it from a purely pragmatic sense, that earned him a beheading. But we still learn about John the Baptist to this day, and Jesus' own testimony about John the Baptist tells us volumes. It is a continual challenge to avoid the swan song of the world 
and to maintain a strident fidelity to the message of Holy Scripture and God's law. And we can certainly point to people who've gone off in the wrong direction on some liberal progressive thing theologically or some social political thing. But let's forget those people. Those of us who are, quote, in the right and we're following all the right doctrines and teachings, we are just as susceptible. And I think that when the suffering comes, when the challenges come, as they are even coming, especially to our neighbors in the north, Canada, we will find out very quickly what our faith is really made of. And the fact that it's nice to be comfortable and not have to worry about hunting your own food and enjoy the blessings of of civilization. But it's also important that we must keep before us that the message of Jesus is a message to take up our cross and follow him. And that we have to have that long range vision that we are simply laying a foundation. It reminds me, I was in a seminary class once and the teacher said, I want to ask you guys a question. Most of you are going into ministry. What do you think is the most important thing that you can do in your ministry? Of course, that's kind of a wide open question, you know, and people gave different answers. But I was stunned by what this guy said. He said, no, let me tell you what I think the most important thing you could do. And the thing you need to keep before you at all times is that you lay a foundation in your ministry on which the next man can come in and build and keep things going. And I thought, holy cow, this is, this is profoundly post-millennial. I mean, this is a guy who sees that, yeah, we keep going, we build, we build, and keep moving forward. And too often, I don't think that we realize that we're passing a torch to the next generation. And those Christian martyrs who fell in the, the Colosseums of Rome and in uh, various other ways, at the persecutions of the Jews and the Romans, you know, they were holding up a torch that they passed to the next generation. And on and on it goes to where we eventually find uh, a world that has largely been brought under the authority of Christ Jesus. But uh, that's not one we're going to win with army tanks and bombs. It's one that we win by our faithful witness, and sometimes that's down the path of suffering. Right. The weapons of our warfare um, include the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why if you want to prepare for war, you better sharpen your sword. And that sword means that you understand God's word and you understand the implications. For whatever reason, in the circles I'm now traveling, I'm finding that people are much more attuned to wanting to hear what God's law word says about certain things. Trust me, Charles, 10, 15 years ago, it was like I was screaming into the wind and people just weren't all that interested. But being able to show them how the way they raise their children, the way they conduct themselves in business or in their neighborhood has everything to do with a self-conscious adherence to God's word. So that if their light shines, which it's supposed to do, then other people will see it, notice it. Now, some people will like what they see. Other people will definitely not like what they see. But if we really have this concept that we are part of God's story, and we're really minor characters in this story, we don't know when we were going to be written into the script and we weren't all that where I'm not sure when I'm going to be written out of the script, but I do know that when I'm written out of the script, it's not the end of me. 
then I graduate, so to speak, to being with the Lord face to face. So one of the things that I think marks a follower of Jesus Christ rather than an admirer is that a follower isn't that full of himself. The follower has gotten over himself and realizes, even though it might sound trite, that it's all about Jesus. Yeah, and I, um, I want to share something from the book on, on that note. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it, it is um, in the latter chapter of the book entitled The Gift of Suffering. And the author, Rod Dreher, quotes um, a Christian philosopher who wrote this. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. He renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. Not so for the follower. No, no, the follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. And he goes on from there, but that gives us some idea of what's behind this issue of can we just be admirers and not followers? Should be one or the other. If we're going to be faithful to what Scripture teaches, we, we've got to be, well, we, if we're going to be a true follower, that means we obviously have some admiration. But the, the equal sign beside the word admire is follow and do and obey. I know a lot of people rightfully get concerned if I speak up, if I challenge the status quo, and let's face it, Charles, there's plenty of opportunities currently where the status quo being challenged could mean you lose a position, you lose your job, you have family members who decide they don't want anything to do with you. And again, in this movie, there was this line where somebody said to the man who as a result of saying he would not swear a loyalty oath to Hitler because he had a prior loyalty to Jesus Christ, someone comments to him and says, it's hard to suffer injustice, isn't it? And his response is, better to suffer injustice than to do injustice. If we start equating following Christ as being synonymous with true justice and not following Christ and, and deciding to go with what a church or a government or any authority figure would say to tell us to do that is outside the prescriptions of scripture is that we have to be willing to suffer injustice. After all, did not our Savior and Lord suffer injustice that made it possible so that we would have eternal life. Indeed he did, and as that passage from Acts chapter 19 that I shared earlier indicates that this was going to be the pattern for all who would be faithful to him and follow him. And I mean, the suffering and the, uh, the persecution is going to look differently in different places at different times, you know, whether it's the young person in a public school setting who refuses to compromise the Christian faith they've been taught, and they're excluded from the, you know, the clubs and the, the circles of friends, and they're not in with the in crowd, uh, to something far more serious like the people in the book who you know, had to, in some cases, give up their lives, their families, everything, in order to be faithful to the message of Holy Scripture. But for us, in our time, as you said, we have these opportunities that present themselves seemingly overnight. You know, a little, little over a year ago, most of us were just sort of, taking life as it comes. And then 
of course, if you, if you really understood what's been going on in the world, maybe it wasn't quite so surprising, but I think many Christians have been completely caught off balance and off guard. I know some churches in my area that have never resumed worship services. You know, they still do the online thing. And I think this is going to be the challenge because we, we can watch a movie like uh, A Hidden Life. And, you know, we know what the jackbooted stormtroopers look like with the swastika armbands and all the rest of it. And we see the pictures of Hitler speaking to the large rallies. And we think, oh, well, I would never give in to that. But the deception of evil looks differently in different places and in different times. And it's interesting, in the book, he, um, he has a quote from Solzhenitsyn at the very first page of the introduction. And Solzhenitsyn says this, there always is the fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. He says, alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. Yeah. When it comes right down to it, Jesus says, pick up your cross. Now, there are some people who go out looking for crosses to pick up. That's not what he said. The cross will come to you. That's right. um, you don't have to go out and try to incite things. So one of the challenges today has to do with whether or not you will agree with getting a shot in the arm or not. And I think it's really a wrong strategy for people to try to convince other people one way or another. What I like to do is as I'm having a discussion, I refer to the scripture that says, whatever is not done of faith is sin. So if you're going to pursue one option over the other, do it in faith. But faith, as I said earlier, is not a blind faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is not blind. And he wants us to see with the eyes of Scripture. Rush Judy used to make the analogy that if we didn't have the Bible, it would be like a nearsighted, farsighted person who can't see properly without glasses, without the proper prescription. And the Bible is that prescription. So if you can say no, but do it in such a way that the no is sufficient where you are and you keep going and doing what God has called you to do, so be it. There are plenty of doctors who continue to work, who have not gone ahead and bowed the knee. There are others who have bowed the knee and they don't continue to work, they're immediately fired. But if we're going to default to the understanding that God is sovereign, nothing will happen to us that he doesn't foreordain. And he maybe just maybe wants you to be the guy in prison who's talking to an Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So we never have to say, wait a second, how did I get here? God has forgotten about me. No, he hasn't. Every hair on our head is numbered, and we don't accidentally get anywhere. We may think it's an accident. We may think it's a coincidence, but in God's economy, it's purposed. In my church, we have been studying the book of Exodus, and we are in chapter 20. Where we're dealing with the Ten Commandments and that segment of God's law, and specifically, we've been talking about the Sixth Commandment, uh, Thou shalt not kill. And one of the things that we will be talking about is that there are occasions, according to God's law, where it is okay to take another person's life. Uh, and one occasion, it's a proper use of a weapon for self-defense. And I'm going to spend a fair amount of time talking with that, talking about that, 
And, you know, there's a passage in, uh, I believe it's in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus is talking to the apostles just before his arrest. And he tells them, look, you go take your coat and you sell it and buy a sword. You know, and so the, uh, there's a biblical foundation for self-defense and a defense against violence. But to, to go to your point, ultimately, we don't have to worry about any of this. We're not trusting in chariots. We're not trusting in swords or, or handguns. We're trusting in the Lord. And everything is ultimately in his hands. And we are to be prepared to live this life. And he's given us his law word as his standard for how to live every aspect of life. What is justice? What is righteousness? What is holiness? How to live a healthy life? All these things are given to us in his law word. But ultimately, our, our times and our lives are in his hands. And the nature of our life, the nature of how we witness for him is evidenced in our faithfulness and following what he tells us to do. And we will inevitably follow somebody as the Bob Dylan song said, you're going to serve somebody mm-hmm. and serving is the same thing as following. Let's go back to Genesis three, five, the lie, you know, we're not supposed to live by lies. Well, the ultimate lie and the lie that allowed us to be inheritors of sin was that we could make our own decision between what's right and what's wrong. And what's hard for some people to understand is how much Satan and his demons and those he affects, how much they hate Jesus Christ. They hate him with an intense hatred, so much so that they're willing to torture people who follow him. And that should wake our eyes up to the fact that, that this really is a war and that this war is serious, but it's not a war, as you pointed out earlier, that we win in our own strength. In fact, if you really understand the scripture, it's a war that has been won, but in God's providence He wants his people to get a really good understanding of the difference between good and evil. So when people sometimes ask the question, judging God, how could God have allowed a Hitler or a Mao Zedong or a Stalin? Well, first question we should ask those people is, why do you think those three were bad? Well, they were evil. All right. How would you even know evil if there hadn't been a standard for good? Now, I don't know I would have done it this way, but I think everybody in the world, past, present, and future, should be glad that I'm not the one making the decisions. And, you know, neither are you and neither are anybody else, because we wouldn't have the ability to work all things together for the good. So I understand evil in a way I don't think I ever would without understanding the righteousness and justice of God. It's also important to note that in that passage in Genesis 3, 5, uh, most of our English translations uh, have the, the serpent saying to them, the Lord doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you will know good and evil. The word know there literally means you will be able to determine for yourself what is good or evil. And that is what it really boils down to. It's autonomy versus theonomy. It's humanism uh, versus God's way. Because if we are the ones who determine what is good and evil, well, we get what we see going on in our society today, which is absolute moral and uh, uh, ethical chaos. And so 
we are right back to where we started, which is according to uh, what scripture teaches us, if we admire Jesus, and there's a lot of words we could use. Do we love Jesus? Do we care about Jesus? Is Jesus our savior? Those are all well and good things, but there's, there's much more to it to be a disciple. And if you love him, you will do what he says. Just We see this in all kinds of areas of life, where if I say I like a certain well, uh, something very simple. If I say I like chocolate ice cream, I love chocolate ice cream, but I never eat it. Well, there may be reasons for that, but you'd think somebody who really, really is committed to loving and caring about something, uh, they would engage it at some level. And it's the same with this. We may think that loving Christ and admiring Christ, we are following him by going to church every Sunday. Oh, that's an important part of it, gathering with fellow believers. But that, too, can just simply be an admiration thing. In the movie, that's what's happening is that, you know, the guy is painting the frescoes in this beautiful little Austrian cathedral-like church. And he just says, you know, I, I paint these things and people come in and see it. But all they do is they admire it. We are being called in this time to be very serious about our faith, this time or any other time. Right. It's just that the Lord has raised this standard for us to, uh, to live up to. If you look in the Gospels, what Jesus says to people over and over is not admire me, it's follow me. Yes. And the following is such a rich and, as the expression goes, pregnant word because you could fill books with what it means to follow Jesus. And that's why parents who are teaching their children from the time they're young and not sacrificing them to a state school system are beginning the process of differentiating between admirers and followers. And parents who've raised children know you don't determine which one it is. You present it, and then the Holy Spirit either confirms it in someone or does not. But even those who have been presented with it and don't follow as the expression in scripture is the blood is off your hands because you shared it. And I think that as we get more serious about what we're called to do, we'll realize what a privilege it is as to what we've been called to do. And I think that in our time, we can look at the examples given to us in this book, Live Not By Lies, to see what people under those circumstances who were called to be very serious about their faith, how they handle that in very admirable ways. And we can learn from their examples. I think just like what we see taking place in the earliest history of the church, where Christians were living in this absolute pagan culture and society that had never been Christian before, they found a way to develop a parallel civilization in the midst of this decaying and dying one. And something like that was going on behind the Iron Curtain in much of the 20th century. The problem is most American evangelical Christians know nothing about it. And so for that reason, I think you'll agree with me, they really should read this book. Absolutely, and it will spur them on to then read about church history, to find out how we ended up from a group of fishermen and disciples who did not come from the best synagogues and universities in Jerusalem turned the world upside down, and we had what developed was Christendom. How did that happen? If you don't know, then it's easy to think, well, it was just accidental or, gee, that was fortuitous how it took place. No, it was very deliberate and it was very systematic. 
Well, we would like to thank everyone for listening to this Out of the Question podcast. We hope that you will get a copy of this book and read it uh, and also take to heart the message that we are to be followers and not just admirers. Anybody would like to comment on this or other topics we've covered or to make a suggestion? You know, I really think it would be a good idea if you talked about this book or this movie or just this subject. You can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.